listening to sermon audio from First Baptist Church of Van Holstein. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. If you have your Bible this morning, we're going to be in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We're actually going to get a little running start into uh, chapter 4, backing up into chapter 3, verse 21. I just want to say, say uh, I'm thankful for our worship team. Uh, they do a lot of things behind the scenes, and, uh, and they lead us to stir our affections for Christ every week. That's what I'm thankful for, that they sing truth. They sing truth that pushes us into the depths of God's love for us. I love that song. But... I hope that you'll have the copy of God's Word in front of you. I hope that you can follow along with us. And if you've been with us or haven't been with us the last couple weeks, we've been in 1 Corinthians, which is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth. Uh, And and by way of review, very quickly, 30,000-foot view, uh, remember that the church was planted by Paul. And after Paul had left, There was a couple of guys, a couple of evangelists, good teachers that had come into the church, started to teach them about the way of Jesus. And the people started to get connected with these leaders. And because of that, they saw uh, church growth. They saw discipleship happen. But something deep down inside of them that Satan started to use was allegiance to these men like Apollos and Cephas, it says in chapter 1 above Christ. So you had these guys, you had these guys that were allegiant to Christ, but they were also showing how the guys that discipled them, like Paul and Apollos and Cephas, they were their dudes, right? They were the guys that they were going to follow. And what Paul is saying here is he's saying, listen, to elevate us, to elevate me or Apollos or Cephas is to miss the point, That we brought a message not of our own. It's been the wisdom of God, right? We didn't come with eloquent speech. We even came, we made ourselves fools that Christ would be glorified. And and when you see these men, they started to twist and divide and these clicks started to happen. And it was tearing the church apart. And so Paul's writing this letter and you see a lot of practical things in here that are really hard to explain. Right? You see a lot of topical issues like the Lord's Supper and spiritual gifts and all these, all these different things. But underneath it all, Paul is trying to help them understand that to undyingly follow a human leader is to forget the true leader, the true founder of the church. And so Paul continues, he has this this theme of spiritual wisdom and from chapter 1 to even to chapter 4 and how the message of Christ, not the message of Paul or Apollos is what saves. That Christ Jesus, according to chapter 1, became the wisdom from God for us. And in chapter 2, it is the spirit of God that reveals true spiritual wisdom. It's not the message of man. And I love this in chapter 3. To claim to belong to Paul or Apollos is to act as an infant in the faith. And I love what Paul says, a mere human. I love that. 
So here above the surface, you see division, you see rivalry, you see strife. But much like a door that's kind of sticking in the summer, and you're like, I wonder why that is, right? There's something deep below the surface that Paul is trying to draw out. So let's go to our text. We're going to look at verse 21, chapter 3, um, first, and roll through verse 7 in chapter 4. So follow along with me. Paul says this, So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. You see this, let's stop there for just a second. You see the union that we have in Christ as the main theme. Stop following us as your leader. And he goes on in chapter 4, verse 1. This is how you should regard us, as servants of Christ and as stewards of the mystery of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Verse 3, but is with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself, for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted, justified, innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to, be, not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? Another way of saying that is, are you superior to other people? What do you have that you did not receive? If you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? In this passage, Paul shows us the root cause for the division in the church. What's tearing the church apart is pride. It's it's arrogance. It's boasting. The reason that we can't get along, the reason there is no peace in the world, and the reason we cannot live at peace with one another is there is no natural humility within us. You have a look. You see it all through this passage. Verse 21, let no man boast. That's how he starts. Verse 7 in chapter 4, why do you boast? Verse 6, he, he expands the sentence to say, The purpose of this, the purpose of my writing here is that you will not be arrogant. You will not be puffed up, favoring one person over another. We see the true instability of the church. The reason they are cliquish, the reason they elevate people in the place of Christ, the reason they are of the world, is what Paul would say. It's because they're prideful. In other words, the people lacked humility. You know, humility at its core is having the right view of yourself. There's a lot of misunderstanding about what humility is. We're going to get into a lot of that today, but a lot of us walk around with distorted views of ourselves. It's like this funhouse mirror effect, right? That a lot of us walk around with this belittled view of ourselves that we're all, hello everybody. We're too small, right? 
A lot of us are elevated. We puff ourselves up and make and have extreme high view of ourselves. Both ways are pride. So one of the most common ideas that we see in our culture that is closely related to humility is this idea of self-worth. Another, another way of saying this, maybe an older, not older term, but a, a way you used to view is self-esteem. Over the past 10 years in student ministry, really over the past three, Lexi and I have sat with students that are dealing with serious bouts of self-worth issues. They sit on our couch, and they are almost at the end of themselves. Whether they've been abused, whether they've been told they have no worth, they sit on our couch broken. They're belittled. And their question of, man, who am I and how am I viewed have become the center of their lives. And some students that we deal with, they're, they're not broken, they haven't really been abused, but they're so consumed with what everybody else thinks about them. All of their actions, what they wear, what they post, everything is centered around how they are viewed. Let me just say, adults are no better. In every case... Every student that sat on our couch has had a distorted view of themselves. They come to us and their view of self is very low. Now, let me ask you, if you have struggled with this sort of thing, if you find yourself or someone you know struggling with this, what is the antidote? What's the answer? What do, do I sit there and just say, hey, you're valuable because Jason Lexi says so? There's something beyond what we have to define ourselves and how the culture defines ourselves. And what we're going to see in this text is Paul's answer to a distorted view of ourselves is to give us an approach to see ourselves in a way that our culture has absolutely no category for. It's off the map. So we're going to see three things today. We're going to see the problem of pride. We're going to see the power of gospel humility and the presence of gospel humility. Let's first look at the problem of pride. I want to turn your attention to verses 6 and 7 in chapter 4. Paul uses a unique word in verse 6 for pride that's only used in Paul's letters. It's only used there. Some of your translations may say arrogant. Some of your translations may say puffed up. I love the word puffed up because it, it's literally showing you what Paul's trying to say. It's saying that our egos, our pride, is overinflated, it's swollen, it's beyond our proper size. One commentator says that it's meant to bring to mind a rather painful image of an organ in the human body, an organ that is bloated because of air pumped into it ready to burst. And by using this word, Paul is revealing what's wrong with our pride. Tim Keller, in his book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, which is probably my, one of my favorite books of all time, 50 pages, it'll take you 30 minutes to knock it out. He's influenced my thought on this passage. It's what this passage is about. And if you read that book, you're like, Jace didn't do any work. He just read a book. Like, yeah, you're right, all right? But he says this. He says that our egos are three things, empty, busy, 
and fragile. Let's talk about what that means for just a second. I put a quote for you. It says, our ego searches for something that will give it a sense of worth, a sense of specialness, and a sense of purpose, and builds itself on that. By saying you have an empty ego, it means that there's nothing at the center. There's no substance. It's all air. And so what we do is we search for things that build our kingdom up, build us up, career, money, house, land, whatever it is, and we hang on to that and devote our whole identity to it. Our natural egos are empty, and so we're searching for relationships. We're searching for uh, accomplishments. We're searching for approval, all of this to build ourselves up. But spiritual pride Spiritual pride is that we are competent to run our own lives, achieve our own self, our sense of self-worth, and find a purpose big enough to give us meaning in life without God. And here's how religious people do it. They just use God as their little assistant manager, little advisor that we go to when the chips are down. Say, hey, I, I need some help here. But when things are good, when things are going well, I got it. I'm I'm spiritually competent to run my life. And is this not what Paul is saying in the line of questioning in verse 7? He has three questions. You notice? I'm going to read the CSV. He says, for who makes you superior? What do you have that you didn't receive? Why do you boast as if you hadn't received it? We have all these gifts, all these things that God's given us, the breath in our lungs, the money in our wallets, and we act like we're self-made. I love what Spurgeon said about this verse. He said, when we take credit for our gifts, it's like a walking stick taking credit for the amount of miles it's traveled in the hand of a world traveler. I love that. He says this, he says, we are nothing but a staff in God's hands. You see, our egos are empty. We use things, accomplishments, money, success, relationships like the people in Corinth to fill it. But our ego is also very busy. Because it's empty, it's, it's always having to do two things. It's always having to compare and boast. That's what we see in verse 6. It says, for the purpose is none of none of you will be puffed up. Notice he doesn't stop right there. He goes to what? Favoring one another, one person over another. That's exactly what pride is. It's not just being arrogant. It's comparing and boasting relative to what everybody else has around you. C.S. Lewis says it really well. Okay, This is a long quote, but I, I feel like you need to hear it. It says, pride gets no pleasure out of having something only out of having more of it than the next person. My goodness, is that not our culture? We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they're not. They're proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. And what we do is we compare and contrast what we have versus what our neighbor has. And because they're a little bit above us in the tax bracket, we got to get there. Because they, their kids are more well-behaved, i just got to hide mine. 
You see, here's how pride is so sneaky. You can make yourself think you're humble because you're humbler than the other guy. You can be proud of your humility and think you're humble. doesn't make sense. And all pride is is being more than the next person. It's keeping up with the Joneses or the Kardashians if you're a millennial, all right? C.S. Lewis continues, and he says, Lust may drive a man to sleep with a beautiful woman, but at least lust makes him want her. Pride drives a man to sleep with a beautiful woman just to prove he can do it and to prove he can do it to above others. Pride is evil. It's comparing and boasting. See, this, this passage is clear that comparison and boasting are age-old sins. It's just repackaged in our age and our culture. We have more tools in our tool belt to be able to show people what we're about. So if we're busy boasting and comparing, what happens when our kids fail? What happens when our empire falls? See, we're constantly building our resumes. We're, we're building it through social media, through our homes, through, through the way we present ourselves to other people. And the ego will push you to simply make ourselves look better. So what happens when your work goes unrecognized? What happens when someone has more than you? See, the Corinthian people that Paul was speaking to were using their relationship with him as a basis of their comparing and boasting. They were showing a tremendous amount of pride, and their pride was ripping the church apart. And here's what's funny. They weren't even able to enjoy the relationship they had with Paul. They were just using it as a stepping stone. And how often do we do that? You see, the ego is empty, it's busy, and it's fragile. Because anything that's overinflated is in danger of being busted. For busy boasting and comparison, and comparing, what's going to happen? It's going gonna, it's gonna to eventually bust. So here's what Paul shows them. How the gospel has transformed the way he views himself, his whole ego, his whole identity is changed. So I want you to notice, secondly, the power of gospel humility. Notice verses 1 and 2. He reminds them of the identity of Paul and Apollos first. That they are not on the pedestal that they've put them on, and he calls them two things, stewards and servants. Servants of the church and stewards of the message of the gospel. You know, one of the tensions of being a leader or even being in a sense of authority, you have kids, right? That's a sense of authority. Is finding the balance of caring about what people say and not depending on what people say. It's a big difference there. And this is what makes Paul's statement in verses 3 and 4, so shocking and so outside of any category that we have. So let's look at it. Paul says that it's of little importance to me that I should be judged by you or by any human court. The word judge here is very, very important, right? It means to be examined, to put under scrutiny. Another way of thinking about this is where does Paul get his verdict, his stamp of approval? 
And what Paul is unconcerned about is about gaining his verdict, about gaining his approval from these people. And he actually goes even further, from any court, from any human court where you're judged. You see, his identity does not rest upon what they think about him. His self-worth is not tied in any way to their judgment, their critique, or to their approval. Now, if we stopped right here, that's pretty worldly, right? Like, that's like, you know, there's a couple of songs, like dust off, the, you know, all that stuff. No more haters, right? There's a couple of things that the world will tell you, like, don't listen to those people. It doesn't matter what they say. But this is so different because Paul continues. Because he goes, listen, if, if I don't listen to people, how is my evaluation inside my brain any better? Like, if I am going to give myself the source of approval, the stamp of approval, how does that make me any better? And this is how it's so different. He doesn't get his stamp of approval from the Corinthians or any human court, but he goes a step further and he says, I don't even judge myself. I don't judge myself. Paul has a unique view of himself and his worth, and it's brought about by his belief in the examination of God. And he says, listen, I don't care what you think, but I also don't care what I think. I have a very low opinion of your opinion of me, and I have a very low opinion of my opinion of me. That is absolutely outside of our categories, because what we do is to say, I don't care what they think, but I care a whole lot about what I think of myself. And he even goes on to verse 4 that says, it's not even his conscience that creates this, this mind frame. He says, I'm not conscious of anything against me, but that is not what justifies me. That's, how I'm not, that's, that's not how I'm innocent. Because just because your conscience is clear this morning doesn't mean that you don't have sin to repent of. His justification, his approval is not based upon anything in others or himself. His identity is not found in what others say he is or what he says he is, but who God says he is. One of Paul's most famous lines is in 1 Timothy 1.15. Maybe some of you know this verse. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of who I am the foremost. I am the chief of sinners. I am the worst. Have you ever noticed that Paul doesn't say this in the past tense? He says, I am. I am the worst. I am the chief of sinners. What would be our way of fixing Paul's mindset? No, Paul, you're not a bad guy. You've planted a bunch of churches. You, you've seen a lot of people become saved under your leadership. Man, you're, you wrote a letter that we're reading a long time. Right? You're not a bad guy. But Paul has such a unique view because he doesn't have low self-esteem. He's operating in a way that's totally foreign to us because he's able to see his flaws but not be defined by them. In other words, he's not connecting his sins to his identity. Neither does he totally forget his sins. 
and just focus on the good stuff. He doesn't go, you know what, I am a good guy. A lot of churches have, I've planned a lot of churches, written a lot of stuff, and, fall, and had a bunch of people follow me. You see, our, our viewpoint is so different. Our identities, our self-worth, even our beliefs in the standing before God is often based upon our performance. You know, one of the things that uh, I do periodically is play golf, okay? I usually play golf with my dad because he pays. Uh, but sometimes when we're, when we're playing, we'll get paired up with another person. And a lot of the time, uh, you know, that it's just like the formality. You know, men, they don't like to talk about all the stuff. And it's like forced, you know? It's just like, what's your name? What's your handicap? That's about it, all right? But one of the things that usually happens around four, hole four or five is they'll ask you, you know, hey, what do you do? And I'll just throw, I, I'm a pastor, and just stop, okay? And most of the time, they'll immediately go into their resume, religious resume. Say, listen, you know, I, I used to go to church, you know, I, you know, I'm trying to be a better person, sorry for cussing on hole two, really, really sorry about that. But this is our natural way of, of behaving, constantly building our resumes. We do it with other people, and worst of all, we do it with God. We're constantly trying to build ourselves up, to perform so that people will love us, and we kind of transfer that into the religious sphere so that God will love us. You see, our categories are nothing like Paul's. C.S. Lewis calls this gospel humility. You're not always trying to build yourself up. You're not always trying to build this resume. You're not a self-hating person, and you're not a self-loving person. The power of gospel humility is that we're not crushed by others' critique, and we're not puffed up by their praise. What the gospel humble person does is stops connecting every conversation, every experience to them. And here's how you can know if your identity is within people that you are crushed by critique, devastated. You're devastated by failure, devastated by letting people down. So here's what people do to to defend that is, number one, they create conversations or uh, situations where they're never critiqued. And they start to do people-pleasing activities. Because the antidote to this identity is not, hey, who cares what they think? The Bible will call you a fool to not listen to advice in Proverbs 12. So by this way, our culture says the only solution to low self-esteem is pride. Just think of yourself highly. Don't care what those, don't, listen to your own truths. Because listen, have you ever met anyone who's able to take joy in the accomplishments of other people? Like, truly take joy in their accomplishments. Have you seen someone who's able to take criticism but not let it destroy them? Have you seen someone who doesn't lust for recognition but is also not afraid of it? Have you seen someone who doesn't admire what they look like in the mirror but they also don't cringe? What if we were able to be free from the way we constantly judge ourselves or the way we care about the judgments of other people. 
And what the gospel creates is this ability to see ourselves as we truly are. We're not creating this funhouse image of ourselves. We're not forgetting all the things that we've done, but we've been redeemed of those things. And this image is true that we are sinners, that we are flawed, but we're not defined by it. And it's not connected to our identity. One of my major influences is a guy named Brian Stevenson. He's a Christian activist who advocates for people on death row who have been falsely accused. And he has this famous quote that it says, each of us is more than the worst thing that we've ever done. I love that quote because it's biblical. That we are more than the worst thing that we've ever done. But one of the things that religious people need to hear is that we're also not defined by the best things we do. That our performance doesn't mean everything. Because here, Paul is not defined by his worst and he's not dependent upon his best. He's free from that. How? This is where we get to the point. The presence of gospel humility in our lives. How do we get to a point where we are not defeated by our past, not puffed up by our accomplishments, not destroyed by critique, And not controlled by this idea of religion performing for God. Friends, this category of self-awareness can only be brought about by the glorious message of the gospel applied to our lives. This is where Paul would say in verse 4 how he is justified. This word justified is the same word he uses in Romans and Galatians. It is a legal term. To justify in the Bible means to declare righteous on the basis of Christ's goodness. Not your own. Like we don't even add a little bit to it. I love what J.I. Packer says here. He says, justifying is the act of a judge pronouncing the opposite sentence of condemnation. That we are freed. This is where Paul would say in Romans 5.1, Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So here's Paul's mindset. That it's not the opinion of others that justify him. It's not the own opinion of himself. It's not even a clear conscience. It is the Lord who judges. The Lord's verdict is that you have been freed through Christ's work on your behalf. Full stop. But here's our problem, that we continue, we are always in the courtroom looking for our verdict, for our justification, for other things besides God. We look at, we look at uh, in the opinion of others, in the approval of ourselves, in our good works and our good deeds. Tim Keller would say that without the gospel, we put ourselves back in the courtroom every single day. That all of us naturally seek to justify ourselves based upon the evidence of our lives. Man, I came to church on spring break. It was, it was time change Sunday. I had to get up an hour earlier. I read my Bible. I went through D group. I know my Bible really well. Look at all the evidence stacked up. But here's what the gospel does. And here's how Paul's mindset takes him into another category. The trial is over. The trial is over. He is 
out of the courtroom. He has the ultimate verdict. The only judgment that matters is in. Paul knows people can't justify him. He knows that we can't, or he can't justify himself. He knows the only judgment that matters is the one that Jesus took on the cross for him. So this is how he can write in 1 Timothy 1.15 that he is the chief of sinners. And then in Romans 8.1 to say, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In every other area of our lives, it's performance leads to the verdict. At our jobs, you perform, you get a raise. At school, you study hard, you get an A. And what we do is we apply that to our relationship with God and say, listen, if I'm a really, really good person, God's going to love me more. Christianity is totally different. The verdict comes before the performance. Actually, the verdict leads to the performance. Because of the gospel, you can do things not to just build your resume. You can hand stuff to Direction 613, not because it's going to go on some good list, but because you've been loved by Christ. You can help people. You can steward your money. You can do all these things not to build your resume, but because of the lavish grace and mercy of Christ in your life. For Paul, he's no longer in the courtroom. He's not on trial because Jesus went to trial for him. He was in a bogus trial, accused falsely, and shut his mouth and was led to the cross. He was beaten. He was stripped naked. A public display of shame and condemnation. He was judged so that you wouldn't be. He was condemned so that you would be approved. You see that? So what does an online opinion matter? What does your own opinion of yourself matter? If our Lord, our maker, our creator has redeemed us, said you're valuable, said you are my child, my goodness. How does this practically play out for Paul? If you look down below, we didn't read this, but in verses uh, 8 through 13, he goes into a lot of the uh, suffering that he goes into. I mean, he is not having a great time here, y'all. He's homeless. He's poorly clothed. He's hungry. But notice this mirrors something that Jesus said. Sermon on the Mount, right? He says this. He says, we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat, we pray. We have become and are still like the scum of the earth and the refuse of all things. Here's how we view our suffering. That I must not be doing something right. I got to get back into church. I got to start giving more. All those types of things. Listen, our suffering is not because of the sin and all the things, the bad things that we've done because Jesus has take that, taken that judgment. Now, there's a difference between judgment and discipline, right? But Jesus has taken the condemnation for you. Your suffering is not because you're a bad person. 
And what Paul allows him to do is says, listen, I can do this because of, I've been accepted and loved by Jesus. Because of the gospel view. And this is what the presence of gospel humility does. A whole different framework. So here's two ways that we can respond to this as we close. For some of you, this may be new. For some of you, I have the word controlled here, but some of you are a slave to the opinion of other people. A slave. And you're a slave to the opinion of yourself. And you have this idea of the false Christianity that puts the performance over the verdict. So I would just ask you this question, if you feel that's your category, are you tired? Like, are you tired? Are you tired of constantly being compared, constantly comparing what people say, constantly building your resume? Because here's the, here's the invitation of Christ, that if you come to him and you surrender to his way of life, brings you rest rest because a lot of you think you're free i'm free to make as much money as i want i'm free to live the way i want but here's the problem you're actually enslaved and the only way to true freedom is to submit submit to christ and then there's people in this room that have trusted in jesus a long time Long time, long that I've been alive. But you've lost the joy it is to follow him. Everything is duty. Got to come to church, got to read my Bible, got to pray. Everything is just building your resume before God, putting the performance before the verdict. And I would just ask you to remind yourself of the truth of the gospel, that how deep the Father's love for you That in Christ, you are his beloved. That he lavishes grace upon you. So as we bow our heads this morning, and and I'm just going to ask you to do one thing. I'm going to ask you to just examine where you are. Examine your heart. There's so many of us in this room that are enslaved. They're enslaved to the opinions of people. They're enslaved to the opinions of themselves. They have a low, low view of themselves because maybe of things, terrible things people have done to them or said to them. And I would just ask you this morning to look at the cross, to look at the trial. The death and the resurrection of Jesus. The gospel. The gospel truth and what we all want is to be fully known and fully loved. That we want to be 
known all of our sins, all of our baggage, but still be accepted. So a lot of us, what we do is we think that we're not known and we want to be fully loved. So we just kind of push that side of us away. But here's the promise of the gospel, that you can bring all of your sins, you can bring all of your baggage, you can bring all of your mess, and Christ fully loves you. You will find that acceptance nowhere else in the world. God, I pray for the religious, the people that have trusted the gospel, but a relationship is foreign to them. I pray that you would continue to work on their heart to pry out any of this semblance of my good works got me here. Why do we boast like we received this gift? So God, I ask you this morning, I pray that you would work on our hearts, that we would be people of gospel humility, that we could serve, not to build our resumes, that we could love, not because it's, uh, it's going to make us loved in return, but because of the gospel in our hearts, that we were loved first. So God, I ask this in your holy name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.